Okay, this is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast today. My good friend, Dr. Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cardoso. Welcome, Rabbi. It's so good to have Thank you here. Thank you. Great honor to be here. Remember when we first met years ago at a Absolutely. coffee bean? You had written this incredible book called Judaism on Trial. And I remember thinking, I can't believe this comes from a deeply halachic, orthodox rabbi. And it was so... Such a courageous. Can you summarize just for our listeners what the gist of that book was? Because it, I mean, the title is so provocative. Right. Well, I wrote this because of my own background. I come from a totally secular background, deeply influenced by Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza in Amsterdam in the 17th century, the famous philosopher who was put into a ban by the Portuguese Spanish Jewish community. And I have been reading him since I was a child. My father was a great admirer of him. And uh, he pushed me to look into the Jewish tradition because he asked some very strong questions and had a lot of critique, a lot of criticism on the Jewish tradition. And I happened to start wondering what is he actually trying to say, I don't know anything about this Jewish tradition, he's attacking it, I better find out what it is that he is attacking. And that's the way how I slowly got into reading Jewish stuff, Jewish religious stuff, Jewish philosophical stuff. And uh, that made me aware that there was a tradition out there which was absolutely wonderful, uh, not without its problems. But because of that, I had a look at it, probably very different from the average religious Jew who is inside the system. I came from outside the system. Yeah, you know, one thing I've noticed over the years, I've been reading your thoughts to ponder, and I've been reading lots of, you know, your articles and the stuff you've written. You've written like 13 books already. It seems that you have a a special interest in the toughest possible questions. True. And I wonder where that comes from. It's almost as if you feel so passionately about the Jewish tradition that you want to show us that there's nothing it cannot handle. Absolutely true. And some of the issues that you deal with are like nobody else deals with them. I mean, there's the issue of the conversion and you take on the chief rabbinate in Israel. You're known for that. True. People call you a, a controversial sort of orthodox rabbi. Give us an example of how you've taken on, because I know the conversion issue is extremely sensitive one. Uh, in Israel, there are hundreds of thousands of Russians, for example, who risk their lives in the army. They feel Jewish, and yet the chief rabbinate makes it so, so difficult. Talk to us about that. Well, I uh, disagree indeed with the chief rabbinate because I think they have a very uh, small-minded understanding of what the Jewish people are all about, its mission, and the way how Jewish tradition works, and how halacha, how Jewish law works. They come from a perspective of what I call a defensive mechanism, uh, of trying to save whatever there is to save. And on top of that, there is a lot of fear there of God forbid we do something or we would get challenged or we would do something which is not correct. While I'm saying fear is not part of the Jewish tradition, it is courage which is part of the Jewish tradition. And I work from that perspective and therefore I really don't care uh, whether or not they agree or disagree with me my main point is I want to show the other side of the story. And when you ask me about conversion, uh, then I am of the opinion that at least in Israel, we should convert on the most easiest terms. Uh, anybody who came to live in Israel has served in the Israeli army. Uh, not without some kind of religiosity to it and some halachic criteria, but on a low level. And first of all and foremost, it is a matter of trying to inspire these people to want to become Jewish, which you don't do by teaching them the laws 
what they are permitted to do on Shabbat and what they're not permitted to do on Shabbat and so on. You show them the mission, you show them the ideology, you show them that you are becoming part of a very special, unique nation, 4,000 years old, nobody is as old as that, at least not as small as we are at the same time. And if you want to be part of that, then you would want to become Jewish and therefore we will put the uh, criteria quite low as long as you buy into the ideology, as long as you buy in, into the ethics of the Jewish tradition, you understand something about Shabbat uh, and understand something about uh, eating uh, kosher. Uh, and therefore we should invite them as much as we can to make it as pleasant, as attractive as possible, which I absolutely believe can be done, to the point that I'm of the opinion, I'm not the only one to say this, that we may have to go for what I call mass conversion. Take all the 400,000 people, tell them you want to become Jewish. Uh, here are a few very down-to-earth criteria, which are not too heavy to take on. After all, you're living in the land of Israel, so you're automatically already eating kosher, and Shabbat is in any way the rest day, and so on, the Yamim Tovim, the, the festivals, and so on. And we want you to become Jewish. A, we need more Jews. Number two, you have been prepared to put your faith with the Jewish people, and therefore, let's convert you. And even when afterwards you are not keeping everything or observing everything, so may it be. Uh, this was, by the way, the, the, the opinion of a rabbi, one of the, the first chief rabbis, Sephardi chief rabbi, Uziel. Uziel, Correct. who was exactly of that opinion, and I fully underscribe that. What, what fascinates me is I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised to hear everything you said from a reform or non-orthodox rabbi in, in America, but you come from an halachic standpoint, sure. right? Sure. So everything you've said, you find... Uh, is rooted in Jewish law, is it not? Yeah, it absolutely is. I can prove my every point I make concerning conversion that is already found in the Talmud. It is found in the Mishnah, it is found in the Midrash and later authorities, which over the years were basically ignored or even denied and done away with. But since I know the Talmud quite well and I know where these sources are, I see a very different and a much more beautiful picture than the chief rabbinate does. And therefore, I definitely believe that from an orthodox perspective, but the word orthodox is a bad word in any way for orthodox Judaism, but after all, there are many different opinions about many, many things, which is absolutely great in my, uh, in my point, from my point of view. And therefore, I can easily show that there is a whole different way within the orthodox setting which the chief rabbinate and many also rabbis are not prepared to accept. Right. Now, there's a difference, though, in Israel versus America. For sure. example, in Israel, you have the halachic concept of zera Israel, the progeny. Correct. And that makes so... It, it, it wouldn't be as easy in America, would no, it? No, that's definitely true. Yeah. It's a different story. One, one of the most sensitive issues right now that's whirling the orthodox world in America is the role of women. Yeah. And there is a movement called Open Orthodoxy. Yes that is really pushing the envelope. Right. And you know where the rubber hits the road is, do you treat tradition in an halachic way or not? Because a, a lot of the sort of uh, more traditional orthodox um, groups in, in America will say, I agree that halachically you can make a case for such and such. However, we believe that tradition and Messorah, like they say, is we treat it almost virtually like halacha. What do you think of that? Well, I think that their view on halacha is uh, very problematic because halacha is a much broader concept than what has been made of halacha over the many years. And therefore, my interpretation of halacha is a very broad one and has a lot of ideology to it and a lot of music to it, if that's the right word. And therefore, I come from a different perspective. Uh, also, uh, to be quite honest, as you probably know, I'm myself a convert. I'm a child of a mixed marriage. My father was a Sephardi Jew. My mother was not Jewish. And uh, because of Spinoza, I got myself involved in the Jewish tradition, converted when I was 16 years old. 
and therefore my experience in this field is very personal and therefore I also can identify very well with so many people in Israel and also outside Israel and therefore I'm saying there are enough flexible halachic criteria to be used and we should use to solve an enormous problem specifically in Israel and that is the very fact that we cannot cope with 400,000 non-Jews from a halachic perspective which by tomorrow there will be 600,000 and that will grow and grow and grow and the state of Israel can just not afford that. So my mind is also one, not a political one, but also a very pragmatic one. Keep the Jewish people together and if the only way uh, th uh, this is possible by converting these people under the most easiest circumstances, do it for the sake of Israel, for the sake of the state of Israel, and for the Jewish people, we mm -hmm. have to st stay unity by all means. Now, what about the, the role of women within Alaha? What's your take on that? How far can we go? This idea, you know, women rabbis, like that is so common in America, in the sure. Reform and, Orthodox and conservative worlds, and some uh, open Orthodox. What, what's your take on that? I mean, how far can we go? I think we can go quite far. Uh, I, I don't see anything wrong in women being rabbis. Uh, now that's supported by Benny Lau. That is for Ju example. Jerusalem, who's yeah. a major yeah. orthodox yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. force yeah. in Israel. It Correct. seems that you might even be ahead of the orthodox movement in America, in Israel, that is when, it comes, true. when it comes to the role of yeah. women. Yeah. Yeah. So from, yeah. from your view... I have very little difficulties in accepting women like that. I think they are definitely equal. They are not in according to the strict halacha, and therefore I say this strict halacha has to be reinterpreted by certain criteria, and then afterwards we can make them evil, e sorry, equal, <laughs> equal, and uh, equal, but different. There yes. is a difference between a man and a woman, and that we have to accept, and if we wouldn't accept that, we would only run ourselves into a lot of trouble. But for the rest, there is very little here which should hold us back from giving them the place they need to get. Especially because we are living in a modern world where the status of women has changed radically from the past. You used a beautiful word a few minutes ago, the music, the music of Alaha. And I love that word. And in reading your, your, your writings over the years, there is a, a kind of an imagination rooted in Alaha where you take this notion of halacha which is usually so strict and rigid and you reimagine it in a yes. in a kind of a musical way almost that that doesn't run away from it that goes deeper inside of it yes i believe that the halacha is not so much an issue of law but of mu musical notes when i read halacha i read mozart i mm. read beethoven paganini mm. Mm. who were playing their religiosity on the violin or on any other particular instrument. And that's the way how I live my religious life as well as a halachic Jew, because for me, halacha is not law. Halacha means to walk, la leget. It means also constantly to have to take into account the changes we're in, which, uh, in the world in which we happen to live. And therefore, like music, which can be, I can play Mozart one way, I can play Mozart another way. There are many different interpretations. And I, so can, I can do exactly the same thing with Halacha. Yeah, and I, I think one of the problems traditionally has been the use of the word law. Right. So I, you know, I grew up in the Sephardic tradition. We have, you know, I, I've seen tough rabbis over the years, sure. and it's the law, it's the lacha, and sometimes I feel like telling them, look, if I if I burn a red light, uh, if I don't pay my taxes, that's the law, right? Right. If I steal something, I can go to jail. That's the law. Right. I know you would like it for it for me to get a ticket if I drive on Shabbat, but it's really not the law the way most Jews see the word law. And I think it just the language itself, I think, is creates a certain distortion. Yes. And this, the chief rabbinate in Israel would love it to be able to give you a ticket if you drive on Shabbat. Absolutely. They would not like nothing better yeah. than for law be capital L, the yeah. real, real law. Yeah. And this is a problem. It's a problem of vocabulary. Absolutely. You but know? the vocabulary obviously 
makes people to think in a certain way and also to act in a certain way. And therefore, I move away from the concept of law uh, because I really believe it is much larger than just a legal system or a even religiously legal system. For me, first of all, that's my personal way how I live with it. It is music. Yeah, th and this is this is the part I find the most interesting is that in America, when we reinterpret Allah something, there's a type of, you know, we we move away from the actual rituals. Right. Uh, if I reinterpret Sukkot right. as a holiday to celebrate the homeless mm -hmm. because of the frailty of the the mm -hmm. of the house, uh, then. I'm going to go in that direction, whereas you stay within the music of Alaha. You don't run away from the rituals. You stay within the rituals and get creative True. True. in that in Be that space. Yes, the ritual itself is extremely important because a ritual does something, and not only in the Jewish tradition, even outside the Jewish tradition, it touches us, our soul, on a level where you can't get in any other way. In other words, while the ritual is an external deed, it has enormous implications for our spiritual condition, which we may not even know because it happens subconsciously. And therefore, the ritual is very important, but I can only live with it in the way that Mozart would live with it. Correct, and, 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 and the word law um, shrinks it. Absolutely. It trivializes it. Yes. And it also creates a defensive reaction. Don't tell me what to do. Correct. Don't tell me that's the law. So I might be willing to build a sukkah had you not told me it was the law. Right. Or light the Shabbat candles. I think the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I think, understood that. Mm -hmm. Just the power of the mitzvah. Just right. sort of just right. Right. do the ritual. Yep. Yep. And then something yep. sort of transcendent happens. I remember reading once, it's not the law, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. <laughs> right. Yeah. I love that line. So I, I think we just, it feels to me, Rabbi, that we need a new vocabulary. Absolutely. You we, know? And that's what I'm trying to create in my own little way. And I hope to influence other generations with that. That is also what my latest book is all about. Yes, I'm holding it right in front of me. Jewish Law as Rebellion, a plea for religious authenticity and halachic courage. This is your brand new book. What has been the reaction so far? It has in generally been very good. Uh, that is to say that people feel that this is a fresh and new look on the Jewish tradition, which they did not expect. Definitely not from what is called an orthodox rabbi. Um, and my the whole point in the book is basically to, to say that uh, halacha is a way of rebellion. A, re a way of rebellion in the sense of not taking the world for granted, not taking a uh, position of uh, mediocrity, but understanding that one of the great functions of the Jewish tradition is, it is a protest movement. It was started by Abraham, the first protester. I call him the first Protestant. Why? Because he did something by turning around and said, the way how things go now is not how we are going to survive and how we are going to make a better life for ourselves and our children. And therefore, he started to protest. He became a rebel. And I, I read the Jewish tradition in that sense of the word. It is a rebellious tradition, which therefore made an enormous contribution to society, not only Jewish, but also the non-Jewish society. And I'm reflecting this in this book. And I come back to what I said before. Therefore, the halachic authorities need to understand that. They need to be protesters. They need to be Protestants. Right, but there's a little uh, wrinkle here, which is that protest and rebellion can often mean running away. And that's, uh, if I'm protesting Judaism, if I'm protesting God, then I'm going to stop believing in God and I'm going to stop doing Jewish things. And it's a double-edged sword, is it, isn't yeah, sure. it? Yeah, sure. I understand the word rebellion differently. I, I understand it from within the Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. In other words, I see its very nature to be built on that premise. Mm. So in a way, we're kind of reimagining and redefining Allah itself 
as a correct rebellious tradition as opposed to just a blanket abstract idea of just uh, yes. rebelling. Which subject have you found the most difficult or one of them uh, when you try to marry Alaha with the new modern world we live in, with the new culture? I'm sure you've come across uh, some real conundrums. There are some moral problems, first of all. I think these are very serious, where people are uh, discriminated against, uh, whether it is the aguna problem which we have, which is a huge, uh, huge problem, a woman who can't get married because she did not receive a uh, bill of divorce from her husband. There are the, the attitude towards non-Jews, which I think is a huge problem. Um, Talk about both of these. The first one on yes. the Haguna problems. There are uh, some solutions that have been brought up in the past few years. Yes, with yes. The I describe them in great lengths in my book, and I also come up with some new solu solutions. Which new one? Uh, concerning the Haguna, uh, not that they are completely new. I'm Again, I'm basing myself on Talmudic knowledge and Talmudic interpretation, but taking them further than what we have been doing up till now. I don't know if you know, but lately, and I'm very much in favor of that, we have uh, some rabbis uh, who are of the opinion that in case a woman can't get a get from her husband, a bill of divorce from her husband, and she therefore can't get remarried, we just annul the marriage. Annulment, correct. Annulment. Right. And that has not been used for a long time for all sorts of different reasons. And we are now reintroducing it again because if there is no other way of de dealing with that problem, then that is the way to go. And since the Talmud clearly gives us an indication that we can do that, we should make absolutely use of that. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing that says that the Talmud should end where it ends. Exactly. You know, because in the same way that the Talmud itself was a conversation, Absolutely. Well, why can't we continue the Talmud? Right. It's the Talmud that reinterpreted some of the very problematic areas in in the Bible, like killing a child that that desecrates the Shabbat and so forth. Right. So you're right. saying, let's continue the Talmud, is what Absolutely. I'm hearing. The Talmud was never closed. Mm -hmm. But it is now handled by the larger religious you know, world as if it is a closed book and there's nothing to be added anymore. And I very strongly... Uh, protest against that because the Talmud was written with the intention that the conversation continues also after the days when the Talmud was so-called closed mm -hmm. a long time ago and we should continue to do that obviously that doesn't mean to say that anybody can just walk in and start having a conversation about that you have to have the knowledge but the main thing is that you have to read between the lines in the Talmud. The Talmud, most of what it says is not written. It is a kind of a telegram style work, which is not easy to understand. And you need to use your imagination of what the sages of these days really had in mind and what they did not write down. And they are inviting you to say, okay, you know, so what are you going to do with what I did not say? Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, so... I'm going to put you on the spot now and Good. ask you for an example of exactly what you mean. You're, there's a little bit of the white fire there, the stuff in between the notes. Right. Can you right. give us an example? I could give an example. Uh, indeed, for example, the Aguna problem. Uh, let me give you a very uh, extreme idea. In the Talmud, or better, in the Bible itself, it says that the only way how you can get divorced is when a husband gives his wife a get, a bill of divorce. It doesn't speak anywhere about a woman giving a get to her husband. Uh -huh. It's completely absent in the text, right? So what did the sages do? They said very clearly, this is not fair. Mm. Why would it be only one way? You know, I always wonder that too, Rabbi. Right. Yeah. Why can't... Why, why can't that go oh, yeah, both ways? Exactly. Yeah. So the rabbis did a very interesting thing. They, and this is the, I would nearly say the good, good spa which the sages had at the time, and which we are lacking today, is they said, okay, if the Bible doesn't give us the option, we will create it ourselves. Why? Because that is our obligation. The Torah was given now into our hands. We are now the ones to decide on uh, matters of uh, halakha. 
And whether or not it is found in the Bible itself, the Bible is only the point of departure. It is not the arrival. And we have to create the arrival, or at least we should be on the road to the arrival. So if the Talmud says you can't uh, get a divorce done, but only fire a husband, then the sages say, okay, fine, we won't change that law, but what we will do by way of loopholes and all sorts of other ways, which are very interesting, and I discuss them in great lengths in this book of mine, by which on the end of the day we have created a situation as if a woman gave a bill of divorce to her husband. In reality it doesn't happen. But what we do do is we make it so impossible for the husband to walk out on him on him having to give a get to his wife, a bill of divorce to his wife, that it is basically that the woman now has the power to put her husband into the corner and say, you know, or you get, or we shoot you, or you give the get. But we don't make use of that today. What, what happens when you say everything you just said yes. to an Allahic expert in, 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 uh, in Jerusalem? I tell you, you I'll tell you what I what have they experienced. Say? They say like this. Robert Cardoso, you are right, but don't tell anybody I said that. <laughs> okay. Uh, Not all of them, but uh, quite a few are like that. Some of them. Now, the other point you mentioned that was a difficult conundrum is you mentioned um, the idea of the attitude towards non-Jews. What did you mean by that? There are many laws in the Talmud already which say that we are not allowed, for example, to do business with mm -hmm. the non-Jew before Christmas because Christmas was considered, or perhaps other festivals which they had, were avodah zarah, they were idol worshippers, and therefore, since we should not have any part in that, we should not do any business with them. There are whole lots of laws like that. Till in, I don't remember which century it was, I think the 11th, 12th century, perhaps a little later, the Meiri, Rabbi, Rabbi Menachem Meiri, a tremendous Talmudic uh, scholar, who wrote uh, 31 commentators, comment, commenters on, uh, uh, on the, nearly the whole of the Talmud, 38 volumes, where he says laws like that no longer apply today. Why? Mm. Because the non-Jew today is no longer an, an Oved Avodah Zarah, an idol worshipper. Mm. He is a person who believes in God, who has standards of ethics, and the sages never meant it for that kind of non-Jew. That makes so much sense to me that the world changes and we have to change with it. What, uh, what you just said, it just makes what? all the sense in the world. The fact that you know, we're living in a different world. And like you said, right. when there were idol worshippers. But what's the reaction with the traditional, you know, halachic uh, interpreters today to exactly what you said? Well, uh, for example, the observations of the Meiri, the rabbi I just mentioned, is that it was ignored for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, they did as if it didn't exist. Lately, within rabbinical circles, especially within modern orthodox rabbinical circles, Meiri has become very popular. Mm. Why? Because we struggle with this problem nearly day by day when we have to deal with the non-Jewish world and we've seen we see they're very fine people, great people, deeply religious people, and we realize that this law was never meant for them in the first place. And I think because our, our interaction with the non-Jewish world is now much more than it ever used to be in the past, therefore but there is a greater need to take somebody like Rabbi Meiri very serious about this matter. So in the Haredi community, he is normally, when it comes to these issues at least, he is ignored. In the more modern Orthodox world, it is much more now an accepted point of view, and people make use of his many comments about this. Do you have contact with the Muslim community in, in, in Israel, and do you have Talmudic discussions with them? Because there's always a part of me that says, I wonder if all these kind of Talmudic conversations are happening in the Muslim world because we know that there are things in the Quran that are extremely problematic in the same way that we have reinterpret, reinterpreted our problematic, many of them. And in fact, this very discussion speaks to that. 
Do you have conversations with Muslim leaders? Very little. It's hard. In Israel, it is hard. It is in Gutslar. It's outside Israel, like in America and Europe. It is easier because there's a whole different dimension taking place. There's so many, much animosity in Israel on both sides mm -hmm. that the conversation is hard. Even when I would invite a Muslim, and I know some of them, it is hard for them to open up their hearts and to say what they really think. But you have to remember and also sing as well. The Islam has a problem that it does not have what we have, and that is called Torah Shabalpe, the Oral Torah. The Oral Torah is ultimately the way which is uh, the one which is flexible, which is organic. It continues to produce new ideas all the time if we handle it properly. You're saying they and, do not and have and that. They do not have that, at least not at all to the extent that we have that. So that flexibility there is less than officially in our case. Mm -hmm. It makes us it much easier to handle Jewish law, let's say, especially mm -hmm. when there are disturbing parts in it, while they have a greater difficulty there because they don't have the instruments to work with, the traditional instruments to work with, because they are not existing within that religion, at least not to the extent as we have that. Well, that's why the reform movement has such difficulty gaining traction. There's a movement called the Muslim Reform Movement right. in right. America, and it just cannot gain traction. No. No. And I think maybe one of the reasons is that it's this flexibility is not rooted. Right. It is not traditional, it is not within the tradition. With us, it is in the tradition, if we read the tradition properly. Of course, there's a part of us, in the, especially in the Haredi world, that would, that would say it's not, this yeah. flexibility is yeah, not yeah, there. But, but basically, when they do that, they are saying something very un-Jewish, because it is there. There's well, no way around it. Well, you're sounding more and more American. Very interesting. Uh, speaking more American, I hope more <laughs> Israeli. Yeah. Both. You know, uh, speaking of America, you've been coming to this country for many, many years, and one of the hot subjects that we cover the Jewish Journal is the evolution of Judaism in both countries, in, in, in Israel and in America. And it seems to me that it's, it's becoming, you know, we had a cover story a few months ago on how Israeli Judaism versus American Judaism, it's not the same. We're moving apart, and I'm not sure that's a bad thing. You want to, Can you talk about that? As long as there is a common language still among us, Americans, Israelis, and I would even include in that the conservative and the reform movement, we should emphasize that point and not the opposite. In other words, Let's not start fighting, but let's see where we agree. But let's let let's go back one second and see sure. how you see the differences, how you see the, the our tradition evolving differently. What are the differences between the evolution of Judaism in America and in Israel? Well, I think in um, Israel there is much more creativity going on in that respect of opening up the Jewish tradition and showing many different sides to it, which is my reading of it. Uh, you hear more and more of it. While in America, for reasons which are not completely clear, that doesn't happen much. It stays very traditional. This is the way how my grandparents did it, and therefore I will continue to do it like that. In Israel, there is a whole different ruach. There's a different spirit going on. The land is creating a psychological condition of creativity, like we have it in technology, like we have it in so many other departments in Israel, because it is new, it is novel. And that also has its, in, that has also its uh, effect on how we deal with the Jewish tradition and even with halacha. Because here in Israel, we are an independent democratic state. We are running our own affairs. Jury in America is not running their own affairs because they have to deal with the states, the United States and the government there. That's a whole different situation. And in Israel, therefore, we have this possibility. We can more or less do whatever we like to do. And I wonder if uh, also the fact that you don't have sort of the labels that we have there, even the word orthodox is not really a prevalent word in, uh, in Israel, no. I wonder if that's connected to this idea of creativity within the tradition, because nobody feels hemmed in by a certain label, if you will. Right. I think that's true. 
the denominations as you have them here and the exact border lines between them exist actually much less in Israel. There's a lot of uh, inter-discussion taking place. Right, it's more Sephardic. It's it more, is more Sephardic in It's more ways. Sephardic, yes. which is, you yes. know, they yes. use yes. the word yes. like traditionalist. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Yeah. it yeah. seems yeah. that the boundaries are just larger. Much larger. With that idea. Yeah, absolutely. And therefore, much more can be done than you probably are able to do here in the United States. Right, because, you know, we become slave to our labels. Yeah. Absolutely. So if I'm a Reformed Jew and I'm right. saying, well, right. you know, right. Reform, we... You know, we go to shul on right, right. Friday night, not Saturday morning, right, or right, right, we right, don't right. build sukkahs. That's not what the reform people do. You become right. a slave to your labels. Absolutely. And right. We, we have to do away with all these labels. And I think, indeed, we can take an example from the Sephardi community, which never created these labels in the first place. Which, by the way, is also the reason why there's very little reform within the Sephardi community. Reform Judaism doesn't really exist. Everybody goes to the same Bet Knesset, the same synagogue, whether he's orthodox or reform or conservative, because there is much more in common there, and there's a whole different attitude towards what it means to be Jewish and what it means to be religiously Jewish, and it is not put into terms of this is exactly within the borderline and this is exactly outside the borderline. No, that flexibility right. doesn't exist. Well, it goes back to what you said. This is a different environment here right. where labels are more necessary. You know, I think where the irony comes in when, you know, one of the big problems now between the relationship between the two communities is a, a certain expectation that Israel would have a similar approach to labels as we have here in America. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what, what might work for one country probably will not work will as not well. Work. Yep. In, uh, very, it, very true. But I do think that we can work together. I do believe that there is still enough where we have common ground and like a common what? language. The very fact that that the Jewish people cannot split up, we can't, we can't afford this at all. We are much too small for that. So then you have to bring in also dimensions to say, listen here, one of the I would even say halachically, one of the criteria is that we must stay one. And if that means that certain compromises need to be made and that there is an overlap between reform, conservative and uh, orthodox, let's say, so let's do that. Yes, you can't sell the Jewish tradition out. I'm not asking the orthodoxy to sell themselves out. That would be very incorrect to do. But at the same time, there is so much in common. When I speak with conservative rabbis and sometimes with uh, reform rabbis, I always emphasize, I said, instead of starting to fight straight away about where we disagree, let's first of all have a look to where we do agree and use that as the point of departure of our discussion. And it works. I wonder if, if the real enemy here is human nature. Yeah. Uh, human nature that uh, seems to be more interested in, in, in danger, in differences, in conflict. And I'm part of the problem because in the media world, you know, we'll get a lot more clicks if we talk about the drama between the two communities and the split and the word divorce. Uh, you'll get a lot more reader attention than if we talk about the stuff we have in common. You know, I don't want to act like I'm too guilty because I do try to focus on what we have in common, but it's there's an endemic incentive to focus on differences, focus on conflict. That is what people prefer to talk about. Yes, but I think there's also another dimension for it, and that is that people want to live in their own comfort so zone. I don't disturb me with other ideas. You know, I live here nicely, I keep my Shabbat, I eat kosher, I do whatever I do, I go to, to the synagogue and so on. And as long as nobody disturbs me there or starts to ask me questions about this, I'm fine. I feel, you know, I feel comfortable under those conditions. Right. There's only one problem here. It's Louis Jacobs once said, the famous Jewish mm -hmm. Jacobs of England, when he said, we have used the the uh, religion in general and also the Jewish tradition in general to comfort the people who are in need of comfort. In other words, to comfort the, the people who have a difficult life. But he said, now the time has come to do the opposite. We, used, we have to use religion 
to make those who are comfortable uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Because th- the problem here is that as long as I live with in that little world of my own and I never get challenged by it, if, number one, I fall asleep. Number two, it never creates any creativity. And number three, by that you're losing out on the whole point of why we are religious. The, to be religious means to say that you don't take the world for granted. You stand in awe in front of the world, but you don't do this any longer. Why? Because you have made your little home where you live your lives psychologically so small that you don't have to look around the windows and uh, beyond the windows anymore. So what happens then is, I'm fine. So leave me alone, please. And I think that plays an enormous role, which is related to another fact, and that is fear. Anything which comes from outside, which is threatening my comfort uh, zone, I don't want to hear about. But I'll give it really means to say that people are very often not sure about what they believe in, and they don't want to be challenged because they're afraid they lose it. Well, I'll give you an example. There was a huge fuss, bruja, that was made over the egalitarian prayer at the Koto. Uh, it took years and years. They finally had a compromise negotiated by Sharansky, and the government looked like it had agreed to it, and then for whatever reason they pulled back. I cannot overstate how uh, offended such a large percentage of the American Jews were, especially you know within the non-Orthodox uh, world. And I wonder how that connects to what you just said, because on the on the one hand, my comfort zone, if I'm a Reformed Jew or egalitarian views, is you guys should respect me in Israel. And if the Kotel is for all the Jews, then I should have equal rights for women and men and, and so forth at the Kotel. I guess that's my comfort zone. So when you talk about getting out of our comfort zone, are you suggesting that um, the Reformed Jews here in America and the conservative Jews who want egalitarian prayer at the Kotel should try to consider more the Israeli viewpoint? Definitely, they have to take this into account. Um, I uh, believe that they have a right to have a place at the Kotel like the Orthodox have. Mm-hmm. But there are obviously certain traditional notions here which we cannot do away with. I tell you what I'm most afraid of. What will happen if tomorrow Messianic Jews, Jews for Jesus, also want to have a place at the Kotel? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do then? Mm-hmm. I can tell you for sure that the Supreme Court in Israel will be very uncomfortable with this situation mm-hmm. because they will probably not allow it. Because there is a certain borderline, which is not always clear where it is, to what extent do we allow people who have really bought into another religion, like Christianity, yes, or they accept uh, Jesus to be the Messiah, uh, are they still our brothers or are they not our brothers? And we, have, we know from the Supreme Court from the past that they've several times decided that they did not allow somebody to come on Aliyah who had converted to another religion like Christianity. Why? Because the moment you walk out to the on the Jewish tradition to the extent that you have bought into an also religion, even the Supreme, secular Supreme Court said that is going too far. So we have to be careful where we draw the line. And the line is not clear, but in my opinion, and I've written by the way about that in the Jerusalem Post last year, about the Kotil situation is, allow these people to do what they need to do, but sit down with them and work out a way by which certain things are not to be done at the Kotil, which can quite well be understood by a Reformed Jew as it can be understood by an Orthodox Jew. The difference, however, is, what can't deny that fact, is who are the people are coming to the Kotil? Not the Reformed Jews. They're nearly never there. Even when we would make a place for them, the big question still stays, are they really coming? Or are they fighting just for a principle and on the end of the day it will be an empty space? You know, I actually prefer Robinson's Arch where they have that other section. I I prefer going there because the rocks are are broken. For me, spiritually, I'm more elevated there. Because it's like... it reminds me that Judaism is a work in progress. Right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I'm more elevated 
in that section of yeah. the Kotel. Yeah. Yeah. And I go there often now. I see. I, I like see. to see those broken stones on the ground. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. I nearly never go to the Kotel. It doesn't speak to me. Uh, a, this is a wall which didn't really belong to the temple itself. It was the wall around it. And I, I don't need the stones to inspire me. I, I think from an historical perspective, it is a fantastic place, no doubt. And we should not give it up at any time. But uh, for me, the Jewish tradition is not represented by the Kotil, by the wall. It is presented in the people who are living this kind of lifestyle and keeping it alive. And what that stones can't do. What's your life like in Jerusalem? How do you spend your days write, writing, teaching, and which kind? Tell us about your life. My life is very uh, busy. Uh, I'm 72 years old, but I feel like 50. Baruch Hashem, as they say in Hebrew. I know, you and met me at midnight on a Saturday night once that's in right, Jerusalem. Yes, yes, in your home, in your home. Yeah, and yeah. my home too, yeah, yeah, right, right. right. We met yeah. a few times. Yeah, yeah, so right. what's your life like these days? My life these days is that I spent a lot of time to answering questions which I get via email on all sorts of different matters related to philosophy, related to halakha, really coming literally from anywhere in the world, including even non-Jews, I get about 150 emails a day. Mm. And I try every day to answer them. I don't need to answer all 150, but those who are serious, I answer. It takes mm. a lot of time. It often takes study mm. because I want to give a serious answer. And that takes a few hours a day. I do that very early in the morning. Then I write several hours uh, my thoughts to ponder, which I send out every week uh, to tens of thousands of people. And then I write my books. Uh, I take a little nap in the afternoon to make sure that I'm fresh again. And I go back to my office, which is in the same building where I live. And uh, very often I spend my time till 12 o'clock at night to make sure that I get all the things done which I need to get done. I'm constantly producing new books. I noticed. And, and uh, th this, is, this is hard work. It this is. is hard work. I, it is. I just have a column a week and I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very hard. Um, and how about your kids? You have five kids. I have five kids, yes. All, all married? All married. Mm -hmm. Many of them are, uh, three of them are, three, yes, three of them are grandparents themselves. I have 16 wow. great-grandchildren. I hope wow. I say the right number, but wow. somewhere around that number. Wow. And uh, do they uh, live around you? And they live around me, uh, except for my oldest one, a uh, girl who lives in America, in Seattle, where her mm. husband is the rabbi of, uh, or better, the, uh, the Menahil, the, the director of an... Um, Beit Yaakov of a uh, ah, Beit Yaakov. Jewish... There's uh, a big Sephardic community up a big there. Sephardi. He's a Sephardi. Aha. Uh -huh. As I am. Well yes, done. Yes, Excellent. Yes, yes. Uh, and what's your Shabbat like, Friday night? Uh, my Shabbats are today, this is... Oh, that's beautiful music. You know, that is classical music. Just, if you want to know, that's your cell phone. That's right. That's oh, and he's got right. an old school cell phone. Uh, no, no, what do you call those, Shani? The clam? Yeah, he's yeah, got no, a flip no, phone. I, I just bought, I just you really are old school. Yeah, sure, I'm old school, but uh, this is really only for the five days that I'm staying in America, so ah. I, I just rented this. Okay. But, but I'm old-fashioned, no doubt. Really. That was nice Absolutely. music, That's though. nice music. By the way, I th this important point that you're bringing up, I w can only work when I listen to music. My brain stops working the moment there is no music. So I get what kind my of music? Office what kind of First music? of all, classical music, mm -hmm. uh, Beethoven, Paganini, Mozart, mm -hmm. the people which we uh, spoke mm -hmm. about before, some modern uh, composers. There mm -hmm. are some uh, very young composers in Israel who are writing remarkable music. Don't mm -hmm. ask me the names because I don't remember at this moment. Mm -hmm. But I also listen to jazz. I listen to uh, the Beatles. Oh, they, I'm they a Beatles they freak. They, they inspire me. They, I'm a, I'm they a, religiously inspire me. Oh, I have listened to the second set of Abbey Road 500 times. Yeah, yeah, sure, I, I can't sure, get sure, enough sure, of the sure. Beatles. Somebody once told me that uh, Judaism was like the, the classical music of religions because right. to really appreciate classical music, the more you know about it, right. uh, it's not like, you know, it's right. not a, right. Right. a little bit of an acquired taste, right. if you will, sure. as opposed to like popular music, which mm -hmm. you can like instantly. Yeah. 
Yeah. And yeah. look, yeah. maybe 613 yeah. mitzvot. That's a lot of notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you the think six, of that? 613, I, I tell you something else. To me, the mitzvot are not just music. They're also compliments. They're compliments in the sense that God said to us, listen here, I want you to do this. And the reason is, you know why? Because I believe in you that you can do it. Mm. And I think that's very, very important because that is a different way of looking to all this. This is not a burden. This is mm. a compliment. Mm -hmm. The question well, is not uh, why do we have 613 burdens? The question is why do we have so many little compliments? Because why don't we have a thousand one of them instead of only 613? Well, I, I can't stop thinking about music for some reason. So midst notes, maybe. Uh, it's my background. Right in uh, Beautiful. advertising. Uh, so what's your Shabbat like? My Shabbat is um, lately uh, not as big as it used to be. My wife is not so well, so it is more difficult now to invite students. Mm -hmm. But uh, we used to have a house full of people sleeping on the floor and so on, and uh, wow. being at our Shabbat table with mm -hmm. very heavy discussions about any topic you can think of, uh, which I still sometimes have with my children. My children don't always agree with what I have to say. And how do you uh, deal with politics, which drives so many of us nuts? And how do you how do you how do you contain the beast of politics when you get into these philosophical conversations? I refuse to discuss politics on Shabbat. Mm -hmm. First of all, as I refuse to discuss finances on Shabbat. I don't mm -hmm. be believe that it belongs there. Mm -hmm. Shabbat is a different dimension. Mm -hmm. It is a whole different world, which is marvelous. Uh, I once wrote that God should get a Nobel, Nobel Prize for, for religion only on the basis that he created Shabbat. Amen. You know, Abraham Joshua Heschel yes, had the same... Famous. He had the same rule for his Shabbat table, yeah, yeah. Uh, but definitely involved with politics outside of Shabbat. So how do you sure. deal with it? How do you deal with politics outside of Shabbat? Because uh, it's in many ways it is uh, dominating our consciousness right now. You are asking Israeli politics or in, in general? Both, both in general. I mean, it's it seems to be you know the number one subject of conversation everywhere you go, especially now in Israel. And does that interfere with the philosophy that you deal with all day long? Do you, or is that something you feel you need to handle? Mm, it, it interferes a little bit. It doesn't interfere so much. I, I would dare to say that I'm in front of politics. In other words, that uh, politics will somehow uh, decide on matters about which I have little to say. Are some of the questions you get, some of the 150 questions from around the world? Yes, obviously, they do get sometimes, I do get sometimes questions concerning politics. And I always say, first of all, I'm not a scholar in politics. I don't know, I think, enough about it. And secondly, I get confused when I read the different Israeli newspapers because one tells me exactly the opposite of what the other one is telling me. So I can't even give you objective information, mm -hmm. uh, which makes it much, much harder. And therefore, I let it go. It is not going to disturb my life. Right. And yet there are so many rabbis, so many rabbis in the Knesset, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, well, it overlaps. Yeah, yeah. Well, the truth about it is that the religious parties, with all respect, uh, should not be part of the Knesset. I don't believe at all that the political, the religious parties have a task to sit in the Knesset. To me, the Jewish tradition, in fact, is somewhere a institution, that's the wrong word, but there is no other word, which should have a look at politics and constantly remind the political world about the Jewish aspects of what they are discussing, especially the moral ones, the ethical ones, also in relationship to our enemies. And in other words, that it is a kind of uh, silent government, which is not part of the government. I think the political or better the religious world made a huge mistake of becoming part of the parties of the Knesset or of the government when their task is a totally different one. And I would like them to step out tomorrow morning. And you see the, uh, the Haredi world and how it's grown so much since the founding of the state. And now you have a situation where there's a little bit of change, but not that much. So you have a very complicated situation of the Haredi establishment that's used to not working, not contributing to the state, not joining the army. Is that a solvable thing in your view? Yes, it, it will be solved. And, and only for how 
uh, just by necessity. Mm. Uh, the the Haredi world cannot hold out much longer the way as they do it now. And there's already clearly indications in, in that world that people get better education, also secular education, computer sciences and technology and things like that, because they, A, need to make a parnassah. They have to look after their family and uh, the, 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 the rich father-in-laws have died out by now, so you <laughs> can't rely anymore on them. <laughs> so you better look yourself after your own family. And this is playing a role today with also within the Haredi world, and they realize that things need to change. One of the things which I think holds them back is that the leadership of the Haredi world is not there yet. These are mainly elderly people, and, but with all respect, they are out of touch with reality. Mm -hmm. And they are still admired far beyond, uh, you know, what I would permit even from a halachic perspective, as if they are God them, themselves. Uh, and this has to stop. Do you it have will stop. personal contact with any of the chief rabbis over the years? Not anymore. I used to have. Did you? But uh, I, I, I gave up on it because I was speaking against the wall. And who do you uh, associate with? Because I know there's some just wonderful movements uh, Rabbi Riskin and uh, Itim, Rabbi Farber, and Benny Lau. Yes. There's a whole movement. There's a whole movement. Um, I, all of them are my friends. Mm. Um, I don't think they go far enough. Mm. I'm more extreme about that and more radical about that. I think that they are still, they are still afraid of the establishment. And I'm constantly telling them and their, their people, don't be afraid. You mm -hmm. have now a different task, and that is to walk in front and to show the way we need to go. Don't look over your shoulders what people are saying. Have the courage. Are you going to pay a price for that? Sure, you're going to pay have a price. Have you paid a price? I have paid a price in the sense that in certain circles, I am obviously highly suspected of being herit uh, heretical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Louis Jacobs? Like Louis Jacobs. Also, I don't uh, right. agree with you with Louis Jacobs, a lot of things, but he was a fantastic man, without any doubt. People who criticize him don't even know what he wrote and mm. how much knowledge he had. Mm -hmm. uh, I have great respect for him. I don't agree with him on all matters. But the man, the, the, the great man, I personally believe in Israel, who is no longer alive, uh, was Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz. Mm. And he was actually one of the first people who started to look into the halacha from the perspective of the state of Israel. How are we going to make sure that we are able to have the state of Israel uh, progress, do what it needs to do, making a good life for the Jewish people, while not violating halachic principles, at least not too much. And he wrote a whole book about this, correct. which I think is a fantastic work. Correct, correct. And uh, David Hazoni has written about yeah, him, that's right. I remember. Yeah, and yeah. Um, w uh, are there any followers today, prominent followers of Eliezer Berkowitz? Not much, mm -hmm. not many. There are a what few does that tell us? That tells us that it takes more time. Mm -hmm. uh, big people like Eliezer Berkowitz normally get more attention after they died than when they were alive. Mm -hmm. You see this often happening. Berkowitz is now getting a little bit more attention, also because of David Gassoni. But it will mm -hmm. take more time because it is radical what he has to write, and mm -hmm. people are afraid of that. But I push him a lot also in this book of mine because I believe that he has the key to the future. Who who do you love to learn uh, among the, the great, great? I mean, obviously, you have a limited m amount of time, and over the years, between the Rambam and the Ramban and the Vilna Gaon and uh, Abram Joshua Heschel and Berkowitz, and there are so many incredible voices in our tradition, and we have so little time. Who has marked you the most? Heschel and Berkowitz. Mm. It's interesting you bring up Heschel. I can't tell you how often I, I go into Orthodox synagogues in America, and I'm always wondering, why are they not talking about Heschel? What is they that? Don't, because Heschel was identified with the JTS, with the Jewish Theological Seminar, which is the seminar of the conservative movement, and therefore they automatically said that he's not kosher. 
Mm-hmm. But if anybody was kosher, it was Heschel. Oh, my God. His books are extraordinary. Excellent. The, the Prophets. Unbelievable. There's one on Heavenly Torah. Do you yeah. have all his books? Yeah, I've, I've read yeah. them all. I've read them all. I use them all the time because the man was also a tremendous scholar, tremendous Talmudic scholar also. He had it all on his fingertips. And he has this incredible poetic language in which he rewrites authentically the Jewish tradition for our for our age. I had lunch with an ultra-Orthodox rabbi once and we were talking about he was trying to reach out and encourage Jews to be uh, celebrate Shabbat. And he said to me, I'm going to tell you something, but promise you're never going to repeat it and not <laughs> use my name. So I'm doing, not using his name. Right. And he said he had a secret and he had, he had a book that he was hiding and he didn't want any of his colleagues to see it. And it was Heschel. Yep. And he would use the book of Heschel to encourage young Jews to celebrate Shabbat, and then he would hide it away. Yeah. Is that, isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's interesting, but it's also tragic. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it's very tragic. It I is. I the same, by the I way, agree. with my book. I know that uh, real orthodox, ultra-Orthodox uh, people are reading my book, but they are hiding it from their, uh, from their friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you would ask them, are you reading the book of Robert Cardoso, they will say absolutely no, but I know for sure that they do. Uh, why is that? Because they're that scared of what, what people will say about them. You know, I think f- uh, if I can just permit myself to sort of imagine and envision uh, a future, I think when, when, when they're able to take religion out of politics right. is when I would imagine a future where Jews don't have to hide what they're reading. And I think it will actually elevate religion in Israel. Absolutely. You know, I, I fully agree with that. I think that any human being or any Jewish human being needs to read Heschel. I don't understand why Heschel is not read in the Yeshivot. He mm-hmm. is not. He is completely ignored and many people don't know about him. Even that's true about Rav Kook as well, who was also a very remarkable thinker in his own way, uh, which in Haredi, in the ultra-Orthodox world, is not accepted. And that, I think, is a tremendous... Why is he not accepted? Because he's too Zionist and because he has very bold ideas about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I once had an uh, encounter with a rabbi who said, uh, you are writing heresy. So I said, that may be true, but have you read a book by Rabbi Cook called uh, Dor Nevuchim or Nevuchehador? Nevuchehador. If you read that then I'm a great traditionalist compared to Rabbi Cook because Rabbi Cook goes even much further than I do. Yeah, you know, this whole conversation of broadening and reimagining and the music of Alaha, um, it comes up a lot. One of, the, one, one of the areas is just basic nutrition that's kosher, uh, food that's kosher and yet really bad for your body. That's right. <laughs> you know? And I'm wondering, is, is that it? I mean, is Alaha going to just satisfy itself with just kosher food that's full of fat and grease and salt and sugar and just disgusting things that, that we know now from science is really, really bad for your health, and yet it's fully kosher. There's something wrong with that picture. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I've, I've also written about this, and, uh, you know, this all needs to change. I am, and perhaps I'm too optimistic, it will change. It will take time. It has also a lot to do with what is happening in the non-Jewish world. The more the non-Jewish world becomes aware and makes us aware about the danger of food and so on, the more we will at a certain moment be forced to take notice and yeah. to uh, start to include that in uh, in our way of uh, thinking about these matters. Correct. And, and words are important. And alacha is a different word than just a Jewish value, for example, because alacha has got gravitas. Right. Uh, one example that you brought up, you know, a few minutes ago on conversation. Um, so you'll sit down at a Shabbat dinner and the alacha is the nitzilat yadayim and the, the right. kiddush and, right. the, and the prayers. Right. That's alacha. But then conversation, all of a sudden, that's optional. So you can talk about politics or terrorism or just disgusting things, mm-hmm. and somehow it's not given the same status as no. the rituals. Yeah, that, that is true, and that is a great pity that that happens. And what I'm trying to do at the Shabbat table is to try to show them that all the topics, any topic you can think of, 
has a Jewish dimension to it, where we have sources, where we have insights, which most people don't know about. And by the way, very important, uh, which I never knew, but I have discovered in the last few years, is that the great Hasidic thinkers over 150 years ago, not anymore today, I don't believe that there's any real Hasid walking around anymore in this world, but the old thinkers within the Hasidic world of 150 years ago were the most extreme and radical thinkers which you can compare to a Spinoza or to any of the other great thinkers of in the, in the Gentile world because they wrote things specifically about this matter. What is this halakha? Is this halakha just there to tell us what to do or is it to basically make us to uh, become better people, mm. to, you know, create bigger souls within ourselves. And that mm -hmm. is very much what the Hasidic world uh, in these days came from and what it wanted to establish. Give me an example of one of uh, these Hasidic thinkers that you mentioned. Uh, there is a uh, safer written by the, 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 the person who wrote it is Rabbi Yosef Mordechai Lehner. I hope I, s I have the correct the full correct name there. He wrote a book um, which is called The Mehashiloach. Shlomo Karlebach made that book very famous. Nobody knew about the existence of this book. It was completely ignored. The man there writes very risky stuff where he removes the boundaries of halacha and wants more spirituality to enter mm. into mm. the Jewish tradition, more music. Mm. And he does that sometimes in very radical ways. His Hebrew is a very difficult kind of Hebrew. Uh, at the time when he published this book, he couldn't publish it with a Jewish publisher because they all refused. They had to go mm -hmm. to a non-Jew to publish it. Mm -hmm. And then it got lost and Shlomo Karlebach somehow discovered it and made it very popular. Well, I spent many Friday nights with Shlomo Karlebach and I can tell you that there's not much music in politics and current events. No. And no. You, it would rarely ever come out of his but mouth. But I don't think that politics should really take our lives or overtake our lives. It has in America in it, many ways. Yeah, yeah, I and I think a lot of rabbis have decided that um, there's, you know, so much Judaism in politics that it becomes almost like, uh, you know, uh, an expression of Jewish values, if you will. Yeah. I think that's a mistake. That's a huge mistake. Yeah. That's a huge mistake. So on that uh, wonderful note, Rabbi, can't thank you enough for joining us here in our Jewish Journal studio. The name of a new book, the title is Jewish Law as Rebellion, a plea for religious authenticity and halachic courage. Um, if uh, people want to get on your website, what's the website address? www.cardosoacademy, one word, cardosoacademy.org and they can subscribe to uh, Thoughts to Ponder. Thoughts to Ponder doesn't cost any money. They just I just need their name and their email address. I, I highly recommend it because uh, I read it myself and, and thank you again uh, for coming in and sharing your provocative insights. Thank you. It was an honor. Thank you.